What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? As we all know, people will always be tempted to wipe their feet on anything with welcome written on it. Nonetheless, I'd like you to resist temptation as I welcome you back to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast. I'm Mark Fisher, and in this episode, we're going to be digging deep into the center of XTC songs with a celebration of some of the band's best middle eights. And there are a lot to choose from. Uh, Before that, though, let's warm up with some music created by you, the listeners. If you've heard the last few episodes, you'll know I've been challenging the musicians among you to write a song in response to something that has been said on the podcast. A conversation about playgrounds and XDC songs inspired Ed Stainsby to write Climbing Frame. I've been thinking all day about the climbing frame. An analysis of No Thugs in Our House gave David White the idea to write Still Got It. I let my toffee nose in a the name of the podcast led Gary Perkins to write What Do You Call That Noise? The neighbours rang to say they've seen enough I've got my music loud Further discussion of English settlement prompted Chris Badley to write Round and Around And round and round it goes, reaping what we sow And round and round it goes, cos that's all we know And round and round it goes, going with the flow And round and round it goes, and round Craig Stevens tried his hand at a spot of Andy Partridge-style punning by turning We Are Not Alone, a remark in an early issue of Limelight, the XTC fanzine, into Not Alone. Which brings us to this month's contribution, and here is Gary O'Donnell to tell us what it's all about. What do you call that noise? I am Mark. Hi, everyone. My name's Gary O'Donnell. My band's called The Forever Behaviours. Um, And we have written the song called Encyclopedia based on the idea of the podcast. But I'll say a little bit more than that because at the beginning of the song, there's a sort of under-the-counter reference to um, not just the podcast but the bumper book of fun and limelight before that. It's an excerpt from the 1960s, The Time Machine. It's Rod Taylor asking the Eloy, books, do you have books? Yes, we have books, he replies. Well, yes, we have Limelight. Yes, we have the bump book of fun. And now, yes, we have the podcast. So to me, they're all the same living entities, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, Limelight was the forerunner, wasn't it, before you know we were in the connected world we are now to be able to sort of read about the band, read about what fans thought about with the band, read about what the band thought about themselves and everyone who worked with them, what the songs were about, what the worlds were about, what they thought about other bands. So, you know, the whole thing was a, a sort of brilliant cornucopia, I guess, of XTC-ness. And, um, you know, I didn't want to sort of offer the song as being a very direct and obvious um, interpretation of that. I myself wanted to sort of go around the houses, you know, with the things I suggested in the song um, about, um, you know, telling the weight of the world and how the oysters make pearls and the bird and sea. Um, you know, all of the type of things that we, we get 
from the podcast, really, all of the sort of mad facts about the band and the fans and everyone else that, you know, we didn't know about, you know, listening to, to um, remember listening to the, the Hugh Padgham thing about Black Sea and all of the sort of little factoids and things you didn't know, you know. So I wanted to sort of uh, uh, honour and appreciate it all by being not so obvious and trying to sort of embrace everything. And the last sort of um, part of the song where it talks about um, having a daily slice, you know, the sort of surround vocals say everything you needed in the books you've lived through the years. And I guess that's true, you know, everything we have ever known and grown from, from Limelight has helped, you know, sort of support everything else about the music and the world of the band that we've we've loved. And the extension of that now is the podcast, you know, everything, it's it, the accessibility of the podcast and everything and to actually hear the voices and things. You'd only get to do that if in the past it was on the radio or there was a radio show. So in essence, it's like, you know, a monthly radio show all about XTC and the world of XTC. So it is an encyclopedia of facts, thoughts, opinions, and love, um, not just for the band and the work, but the but the people within who, who love the band themselves. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. So well done, Mark, and well done, everyone who continues to sort of listen, contribute, and play an active role in in keeping the XTC community as vibrant as you know, I'd not just I guess how the band would want it, but as the records have always been to us as admirers, you know. Thanks very much. I will say, yeah, Mark did ask about having a link to the material. Um, it will feature the song on our album, which is called Growing Pains, which will be out on Frets or Records sometime towards the end of the year. But hopefully, I'll be able to keep um, Mark and everyone updated on on what that'll be about and and everything to do with it if people are that way inclined enough to be interested so thanks very much for your time onward and upward this is pop what do you call that noise do you have books books yes we have books
Excellent. Thanks very much for that, guys. What an amazing tribute. Um, that was really good. If you are a songwriter and you have been inspired by something we have discussed on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, please send your song to mark at xdclimelight.com. And I'll look forward to hearing what you come up with. If you've been enjoying the podcasts and would like them to continue, and I'm sure you do, it would be tremendous if you could join the Pink Things, the Humble Daisies, and the Knights in Shining Karma on Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher and choose your level of support. If you choose to join the Knights in Shining Karma, I'll read out your name at the end of every episode. And if you haven't done so already, you should pop over to xdclimelight.com where you'll be able to buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise? An XTC Discovery Book. The 228-page book brings together some of the world's leading musicians, including Rick Buckler of The Jam, Chris Difford of, the, of Squeeze, and Debbie Peterson of The Bangles to discuss what makes XTC so very special. What do you call that noise? Today, we're bringing together musicians and songwriters to talk about the fine art of the middle eight, something XTC excel at. So let me introduce everyone. First, let's welcome back to the podcast Crawford Blair, who was briefly a member of the XTC cover band Ecstatic, and <laughs> as I like to remind him, and works as a freelance sound engineer, mixer and designer. He was also a member of Rothko, a band consisting oh of word. three bass players, and not many of those to the pound. Hello, Crawford. Hi, pleased to meet you again. Lovely to have you back on the show. And um, I have to give Crawford a special thank you for suggesting the Middle Eight theme. And thanks to Crawford also for connecting us with our next guest, who is Kavis Torabi. Kavis uh, is a musician, composer, record label owner, and broadcaster, and he has been in too many bands to mention, but prominent among them are Cardiacs and Gong, so that's pretty cool. Um, a big welcome to you, Kavis. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. Talking about my favourite subject, XDC. So yeah. Yes, well, we, we've been doing it for quite a long time and still finding more things to say, which is um, suits me right down to the ground. Um, and I'm going to introduce our next two guests together, seeing as they're in the same band. It's Sarah Palmer and Laurie Langan from Fascine. And Sarah and Laurie caught the attention of XDC fans for their cover of That Wave and their appearance on This Is Pop, the XDC documentary. And I believe they'll be playing at the forthcoming XDC convention. So welcome back, Sarah. Yes, we will. Hello. Excellent. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> and to Laurie. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> nice, enthusiastic. Nice, nice downbeat reply there. Um, <laughs> last but not least, it's David White, who I've been roping into these podcasts since the very, very start. And um, David records under the name Boy48 on SoundCloud. And it's his song, Still Got It, that I played briefly earlier in the program. So hello again, David. Hiya, Mark. Hi, everyone. Hiya. And so great to have you all on. And this uh, it would be very easy for us to just assume that everybody knows what a middle eight is. And I think Crawford's going to explain to us that it could be whatever we want it to be. Is that right, Crawford? <laughs> well, I found a distressing lack of like um, uh, definitive information about middle eights on the internet. I was assuming that I would just go on YouTube and there'd be one of those like 
YouTube brain boxes like Jacob Collier and Adam Neely or something like that was just going to have an amazing little film I could just watch that would be eight minutes long and then all my answers would all my questions would be answered. It's not the case. Um, all I found was a couple of sketchy um, articles online and a couple of Wikipedia entries. But so to not be super fucking boring about it, there are many many facets to XTC's music, which is why we're all here. One of those facets and one of those brilliant, amazing things is the fact that they write killer middle eights. You might not even know that they write killer middle eights or there may be a sense that you might listen to a song and go, oh, what's this amazing little bit? And the reason why I suggested we we talk about them is because they're kind of maybe one of the best at it. That You know, I mean, people talk about traditionally the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles about middle eights. Well, I don't make I I would maybe counter that. I don't I don't think the Beatles have written a better mid late than season cycles mid late. I'm sorry. That's gonna get me in a whole lot of trouble from the beginning. <laughs> but but anyway, a mid late. They're also known as bridges, so bridges is totally acceptable. There may be a subtle distinction between the two. Um a bridge might be a slightly more amorphous thing. It could be like a change in key with different instrumentation or a keyboard solo. To me, a, a classic STC middle late is where Things musically, things change tack. The tricky part is when you deviate from the main path of a song, you go to a place and you change uh, the key, perhaps, or the causes, even maybe changes in meter or time signatures. But then you've got to get back to the main part of the song. And that is a difficult thing to do in songwriting. And ATC are incredibly good at it. But what it results in is you have this thing from end to end, this section, the bridge of the middle eight, that is incredibly skillful and beautiful and amazing. And some of them, I almost wish that you could take them out and extrapolate them into full songs by themselves. Some of them are just so incredibly perfect and well-constructed. But a middle eight in terms of definition if you go back to the beginnings of songwriting, there was a traditional verse-chorus structure. And then that became passé when Tin Pan Alley writing started at the, the beginning of the uh, 20th century, I believe. And then verse-chorus came back in, in the sort of 50s and 60s, and has prevailed since then and gotten more complicated. And of course, song structure now is just like, it's an open, you know, it's open season, basically. Song structure doesn't really... There's, there's no such thing as a classic strong song structure with regards to it. it could be anything you think of a song like Oh Superman by Laurie Anderson. There's no structure, but it was still got in the charts and it's still incredibly popular and it's still an amazing piece of music. But back then, the middle eight was usually eight bars of a 32-bar segment and it was the third segment in a four-segment piece and it was A-A-B-A and B was the middle eight and it was basically a moment of change, like a palate cleansing moment that then eight bars later, you would return to the tune, not the verse or the chorus, just the song, the tune. And that uh, middle eight was a way of just like, you know, it's just a moment of change so that when you can bang in straight back into Oh Susanna or, you know, some, some old track, there was a moment of incredible rush of euphoria as you're reminded of the the top line melody of um, some scratchy old tune, basically. And for some reason, it has carried forward into the verse-chorus structured world of music writing. Some of the XTC ones are eight, but exactly eight bars long. 
Um, I think I can't own hers eight bars. That's we're probably going to talk about that today, but they don't have to be. So it's all quite elastic, you know, the definition. But it's really mainly because XTC are, are so incredibly good at, at, at writing these that I, I felt it was worth discussing and we can talk about some of our favorite ones and why they're our favorites and and what they um what they mean to us basically yeah let's do that that was a fantastic overview Crawford thank you very much for that I'm wondering seeing that as everybody here is a musician and or a songwriter whether we would like to say what middle eights mean to you and your music before we start talking about XTC um David's nodding sagely there do you do you always have a middle eight in your songs David uh, no not necessarily uh, quite often though an idea will come up and I I uh, rather sort of in a utilitarian fashion I think I'd like to just stuff that in in the song wedge it in somewhere because uh, I don't want to lose it um but it's maybe not a a, a good idea for a song on its own, but it's somewhere that it's something that I want to kind of shoehorn in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was maybe going through the same thought process as Crawford there as to what a middle eight is. I, I don't know what you think of this idea, but it's it's almost like a, a little holiday from the song, <laughs> in as far as it takes you on a sort of excursion. You know you're going to come back safely or all being well, and you're actually better set up in a way for the daily bit, <laughs> the grind. Um, when you come back, you're you're raring to go with that final push of a chorus or whatever. Yeah, I really like this. I love this analogy. This is lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like an event, and I can't be underestimated how difficult it is once you, you know, you ping off in another direction. How to get things back, back to the yeah. main theme um, in an intelligent way without it's jarring. It all has to knit. All has to. You have to spin it Absolutely. back together, and that's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I was actually thinking about topography, but um, David's analogy is better. But I was thinking about a sort of the landscape, and you've suddenly got a bit of relief here. Here, here are the mountains, and after all that flatland, here's something more dramatic. That, that sort of thing. But, but um, I like yours better. Cavus, are you a, a middle eight writer? Um, well, I'd, I'll write them when uh, I come up with a good one. Yeah, often my songs will be like you know, they may have five completely different verses and something that might be the chorus. And then that's the end kind of thing. So they don't, they don't always uh, sort of take that structure. But yeah, if I if I can write a good one, I will. I mean, I, in a way, I love having the sort of, you know, having the sort of rigid formality of trying to write a tune that's verse, chorus, or verse, bridge, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, middle eight. But um, yes, I, you know, if I'm really if I'm really pleased with it, I'll keep it. But um, I don't put them in sort of arbitrarily just to have them. I mean, and I mean the thing is, it's, it's worth saying. I think that for, to my mind, at least, I think. Andy Partridge is the king of the middle eight. And it, it sort of struck me um, when I was getting into XTC properly and they, they sort of became, as I'm sure for all of us, they just became this real obsession for me in the, in the late 80s. I had to sort of get a hold of everything. Um, and, um, yeah, just just how much he gets away with murder in the middle, or sort of murder, I should say, <laughs> in the middle eight. of You know, he really, really just constantly modulating, constantly changing key, you know, these incredibly weaving vocal lines. I mean, already really, really, you know, incredibly inventive songwriting, but he really, that's when it seems like, and just like, you know, David was saying earlier, it just seems like they go, the tunes go on such a real adventure. It's like a whole new, like, land gets revealed inside the tune. You sort of go to this other land and then you, you end up back again. So, yeah. Would, would that I could write the Partridge Middle Eight. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, Sarah... When we were talking to Colin Moulding on a recent podcast, it might have been then that I heard Colin say 
some like he couldn't answer the question about verses and choruses because he doesn't really think in those terms. It's just the music that comes and it goes in whatever shape it goes. For Fasine, are you a middle eight band? So when you messaged me last week, Mark, and said, do you want to be on a podcast about middle eights? I said, sure. And then I thought, no one's ever asked me that question. I've never asked myself that question. I don't know what I even think. And then I said to Laurie, do you want to be on? He said, I hate middle eights. <laughs> and then realised after doing a bit of research, that's not true. Of course he likes them and he's found some that he likes today. But I've never thought about it at all. But when you really, if we look at what we've done, they feature in every song. So they're obviously natural and necessary because we we just put them in there and, and it means that they work in the song. Maybe Maybe it's to do with the type of music. I mean... If you're listening to dance music, you might have a drop, but I think that's the same type of context, the same anticipation and the same feeling that you get when you come out of it. So I suppose every genre of music has them, but you don't realise their importance until you're asked the question um, or how not uh, balanced the song would be without them. So, yeah, of course we write them. And when I start to think about what we write, they're massively different from the rest of the song, but that's not a conscious decision. It, it is naturally where the song needs to go. And then, of course, when you come out of it, I think you appreciate the rest of the song and it's almost as if that, that middle eight is controlling your heartbeat, controlling your emotions, and it's, it's building up in this crescendo and then you're back into whatever that chorus is. So you appreciate it even more. Um, yeah, I mean, Laurie, what have you got to say on this? I do hate them. <laughs> no, you don't. I always think, I always think they're like the, the the bloke at a party that you're stuck with for 10 minutes and it's horrible and it really makes you appreciate the company you were in <laughs> because then you get you sort, of go, you sort of go back to it. So it's a sort of necessary evil, right? And <laughs> and I get that it's, it's a yeah. function, but fuck me. God, sometimes I think... The middle eight, right, okay, what are you going to do? I, honestly, if, if if the world had never heard of them, I'd be really happy about that. And middle eights are, are great to a point, but no one's ever going to say that the, the most famous songs in the world is about the middle eight, right? But that's kind of their function, I, I guess. <laughs> you, so, it, you clearly haven't had the conversations I have with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, I think, I think, I think the middle eight is... is it's the space around the object that you're actually looking at. And, and, and if you took that away, the object would be different. So you, it, it's a weird cousin that they need, they need to be there. And, and, you know, I think, I think maybe as a, a, a keyboard player, that's probably where I come from. It's like, you know, you don't notice it, but you, you sort of do miss it when it's not there, you know, but um, I feel like I'm in a, in a group, you know, <laughs> I do hate them. <laughs> <laughs> but it, 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 it's chiming in with what I was just feeling because uh, Crawford very carefully and kindly put together the, a, a compilation of the middle eights that we're going to be talking about. And when you listen to them in isolation, they're fascinating in various ways. However, I kept on finding when I wanted to really think about them, I needed to go back to the original song to see what the rest of the landscape was yeah. around it or the rest of the journey, to use David's. David's phrase. So, so, which in that sense, I'm agreeing with you, Laurie, that um, that you you can't just have a compilation of middle eights, even though they're all fantastic middle eights, and I hope that they'll just work in them. It'd be an awful album. (laughs) (laughs) 
eight bars per song. It'd be like Stars on 45, like the worst version of Stars on 45 you could possibly have. <laughs> the reason we love the songs is because of the songs, right? That, and that, that's what we've got to remember is, is that like, that's not demeaning anything that, that any band does or XTC does, is that the reason we love them is because of the song. And the middle eight is merely a spanner that we, we, we use in that respect. And, and that's just being realistic realistic about it i guess but some of them are fantastic but yeah a compilation of middle eights would be hellish <laughs> or amazing <laughs> yeah yeah or amazing maybe yeah we got a lot of middle hate going on here <laughs> <laughs> i think it, it depends on your attitude to musical contrasts and events i always think of like music middle eights as sort of events and the, the same way you can have even event chords you know where something happens that um just tugs at you, your heart, in a way. And I think some of the best middle eights, XTC middle eights, have that effect on on me personally. And I don't mind the fact that they are contrasting greatly sometimes with, with what goes on before. I mean, sometimes they don't contrast really very much. You could argue that there's some early middle eights that are just, they just modulate somewhere and then Barry does a, an organ solo, one of his crazy organ solos, and, and that maybe you could call a, a, a bridge, you know, perhaps... Um, but I have to say, I'm kind of definitely on the other side of the fence. I want, I want that. Yeah, I want all that horror. The horrible guy at the parties, like he's my <laughs> best mate, really. Well, I mean, my entire career, if you can call it that, was uh, has been launched on uh, the middle eight of Rocket from a Bottle. I think everything I've done <laughs> since that, point, you know, since I heard that, that the world changed color. So. Uh, if it can be called a middle eight, that is. But. Yeah, well, we've already agreed anything if it be called a middle eight. We're yeah, to I, th- I think we've got, we've got rather elastic de- set of definitions for yeah. us. I'm not going to, you know, not going to build a framework around it, I think. Shall, shall I start off with a fairly straightforward one relative to some of them anyway? That's Ball and Chain off English Settlement. It's a Collins song. It's uh, for a middle eight. It's actually 12 bars and it messes about a little at the end because there's a, an extra phrase that's uh, that's repeated, the turn to stow. What I like about it is it, it's fairly functional. It just does the job of a middle eight. It says, while you're here, I've got another thing we think to say musically and uh, lyrically, and it kind of sets you up nicely for the, the guitar solo. Just adds a bit of extra colour. I don't think it, it's too ambitious in any way. And it's, it keeps that lovely, that sort of 6-8 shuffle going. So we're clear about this for people listening. This is the motorways and office block section, isn't it? That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. It, does a, it musically does a slightly interesting thing in that it modulates a tone down but a minor it makes it a minor. So it's, I think, F minor, whereas the, the, um, you go back to G major so it's, it's it's got a slightly it's, it's used in flamenco sometimes that that sort of uh, interval um and it is just gives it a, a nice beetly um emotional tug there it's a major to minor but not quite what you're expecting and then like sarah was saying that means that when you go back to the bit that you're familiar with then you, you're actually going up again yeah which gives you an, a lift. Those are often the most interesting bits, that little piece of connective tissue that takes you from the end of the middle eight back to either the verse or the chorus or somewhere else. Sometimes another section that isn't even related before. Like Yes, in this case, it's the turn to stone repeated. That yeah. Just brings it up. We were having this chat the other day, David, and you said something about ball and chain being 
uh, are quite, con- compared to some of the examples that we will be looking at, are quite straight and conventional middle age, which was your reason for choosing it, rather than because you thought it was extraordinary or that Yes, because I don't think it says, it, 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 as a holiday, it doesn't take you very far. It just maybe takes you across to Fife or somewhere, <laughs> rather, rather than across the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. For those of us who live in Edinburgh, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe it's still early days, so the the craft is still you know, coming into play at that point. And it's a Colin one as well, which I love that we started with a Colin tune because he, he doesn't, he won't get as much of the spotlight really. Of course, yeah. You know, which is a shame, but yeah, it's, it's very bouncy and very beatily, which I like. I like the change in rhythm. I was trying to work out when the very first middle eight in the next EC song might've been. And it's, it, I'm sure there's a bit of a debate about this, but there's one in, this is pop, for example, and then I went through the first two records today. <laughs> this is pop's got one. The the way come a long way, but into the atom age has got one. Yeah, I set myself in fire has kind of mm-hmm. got one. Traffic light rock's got a kind of instrumentally one. Mechanic dancing, it's got one. Bus city talking, the rhythm red, and are you receiving me? I think that's the first couple of records worth. Yeah, which is more than I expected, actually. At that point, though, that I suppose they were interested in just creating a, a noise and, and, a, and a rhythm and, and kind of going with it, and they didn't often didn't even need the interruption of a, of a middle eight. It felt like instead of writing a middle eight, they could just go to like a mad organ solo instead and just modulate away from the, from the <laughs> main crux of the yeah. song and then have Barry do his thing and then come back to, to a verse or chorus. Organ's good for that. So speaks the keyboard player. The question becomes even more interesting. For somebody who doesn't like middle eights, uh, let's find out what Laurie has chosen. Well, I chose Great Fire and the theme tune to Wonderfalls, which I think is honestly one of the greatest songs ever written. And it's a theme tune. It's kind of just this throwaway, well, you might think kind of throwaway thing, but there's just so much genius in there. That, um, But yeah, Great Fire, I guess it's it's about that kind of weird horse clopping little is it banjo maybe banjo in there that little kind of break bit in there and um you know it kind of goes to that little swingy jazzy part and then back into the sort of melting plastic feel of grapevine you know it, it kind of goes into this it kind of levels out it really evens itself out to this sort of kind of beigeish landscape i guess before it sort of you know melts back into this in my head like this deep red that's how I kind of feel it, I suppose. I think it's, I mean, for a middle eight, it's pretty good. It's great fire. It changes time signature or there's, or there's cut bars in it or something, isn't there? Yeah, and it's got kind of this, um, uh, what's it, what's it? <laughs> Mr. Blister, mm. you know, because this weird little uh, <laughs> kind of siren thing that happens. You go, okay, and then it goes back into this, you know, this clomping thing. So, yeah, it's like an old fire engine bell like ringing or yeah. something in the background. And that's the thing with Andy, I guess, is that you've always got to remember that there are always ulterior motives, right? There's nothing in there for no reason. So sometimes you think, you know, oh, that's really cool. But, you know, like uh, Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, right? The, the reason for the intro is the same for this, really. Everything's got its place and uh, a reason for it. Well, that's kind of why I do quite like that. It's a little puzzle to, um, you know, they're like little Easter eggs. Andy never puts anything in just because it sounds good. There's, there's a reason. With Great Fire, there's that kind of awkward 
tumbling of Mr. Fireman, bet you couldn't put me out if you tried. You know, yeah. judder, judder, you know, to get back to the... Uh, he's sort of falling down this hill and yeah. then he sort of picks himself up <laughs> and then it's back. In. But then that lovely sort of, um, that string, that string thing that happens, mm. but... Sort of weeping string, so... Yeah, yeah well... It's not even as pretty as I'd like to say. I feel like it's everything's melting. That's how I, whenever I hear that, I think it's just everything is just burning down and it's just kind of warping into this. It's, it's fantastic, I think. And I guess with Wonderfalls, it's a, a kind of weird vaudevillian uh, singing along to the guitar intro, which isn't sort of anything particularly unique. But then you hear what he's playing and it's, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> you know, it's just you think, oh, that's easy. You just think, no, that's not easy at all. Um, so yeah, I I, I love the the theme tune to Wonderfuls, and you know when it goes into that sort of mellotron-y thing, that little bab and bab, you know, the yeah, very beatly in again, um, and then he goes into that sort of weird. I don't know what it is. It just makes me feel of something like Laurel and Hardy or you know George Formby or something. I don't. know, There's something in the back, sea seafront happening i'm really i'm really glad you picked um great fire because that was that was going to be one of my choices and think that when i was getting into xdc that's when the well not exactly the penny dropped but that that's when i really that sort of thought man this 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 guy gets away with murder and yeah. uh it's it's just so thrilling um i mean the whole tune is the whole tune's so thrilling but that middle eight is amazing and it again it, it goes on such an adventure of modulation and excitement and you know like you say the, the sort of the clip bars and everything. I I love the idea that this was a single because it's just so ludicrous. <laughs> the whole track's so ludicrous, you know. It's so it's so from my world, wh- whatever that is. And my world doesn't tend to get in the charts. I don't think that one. I don't think that one particularly pierced public consciousness too much, anyway. But um, no. you know, it's just incredible piece of music. But yeah, what a middle eight. I mean, you know, I got I kind of got XTC albums in a fairly close succession. Um, from around, I suppose it's around, I'd, I'd already sort of knew them, but it was around the time of Nonsuch coming out and seeing them on the uh, the Late Show doing Books of Burning and going, hang on a minute, you know. And by that, that time, I'd come of an age where that's just the kind of funny pop I was looking for. And so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go around secondhand shops and just buy anything by XTC. And th- this one was like, oh, my God, you know. It's always bugged me that um, even though he whispers the word smoke, it sounds like fuck, and it's always really bugging me. So <laughs> I put it through the stem splitting software the other day um, to hear just what the vocals were doing, and uh, just to see why it sounds. Obviously, it's got a it's got a hard K in it, so there's that. But it really does. Sound, if you're not paying attention, it really does sound like fuck. <laughs> and it's because the last word before it is this, and the S in this aligns with the S in smoke. So you don't hear the S and smoke with any kind of punctuation. You just hear oak. And it's got the and of course it's your brain just does the rest. So yeah. But I, I remember I'm getting quite annoyed about that in an interview with Todd or somebody, you know, one of the XTC fans interview saying, Why would I write fuck? Right fuck <laughs> curling around the door doesn't make any sense. You know? I've never heard this smoke fuck before. But, um... <laughs> you you'll not you won't be able to unhear it now, Cab. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing now. You've made us, you know, hear that forever now. Yeah, it's, you can't unthink it, can you? No, well, never let it be said that the XTC podcast doesn't pay attention to detail. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about what Laurie was saying about the 
the sort of cowbell fire uh, fire engine bell in great fire and i was al- already thinking it was beatley and then there's that little detail and that just sounds so penny lane as well you know the sort of thing that the beatles were putting so i wonder whether there's a sort of musical language that they were drawing on is you know this is what a pop song sounds like and and these are the chords we're going to use and these are the sounds that we're going to use also flitting between four four and three four yeah yeah Laurie, I'm also interested that you chose the fact that you chose I Wonder Why the Wonderfalls at all is is brilliantly obscure because it's not uh, a song that many people have even heard, I suspect, uh, apart from all the millions of people who don't know about it, you see, who, who watch the, <laughs> the programme that it's that it's come from. And I think there's a I, I'm guilty of uh, some of, of neglecting things that seem to have arrived not in the sort of official way so if, if something isn't on an album if something's called the b-side i tend to think oh that must be not as good as the thing that's on the a-side and and i'm frequently wrong in that and i think this is an example where a, a song that you could easily overlook you think, oh it's just this tv theme tune um is is one that you identify as, as being a, a sort of lost classic maybe it's an embarrassment of riches i mean it's, it's such a, I, I actually read that i don't know if it's true but apparently it came via andy where they said that it was apparently a second too long so they sped it up and it really pissed him off so the pitch apparently is slightly higher than actually what happened i, I like to think that's true <laughs> i wonder if that may be because it was for a tv theme and it maybe yeah, 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 yeah. 24 and 25 it. frames it's quite an andy anecdote where it's just not quite not quite, you know, fulfilled people's expectations so, so i kind of yeah. like that you know? it may be a frame rate thing and it'll be about four percent but it's but it, it's so um I I love theme tunes and they're just one of my like, absolute obsessions. I think it's so beautiful as a song and it's as good as anyone's best song on an album, I think. I'm gonna say Harvest Festival. And the one thing about this 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 middle eight for me, I think it's it's Andy, it's most McCartney-esque, but I I also think it's, it's maybe my favorite, but for me, without the middle eight, it wouldn't really be one of my favorite XTC tunes. I mean, it's, it's a great tune, but it's it's you know it's no the man who sailed around his soul for me. But um, that middle eight just absolutely trans sort of transcends it into something heavenly, and just the it, I get you know classic sort of goosebump moment. With, and what a year when the exams and crops all fail. Then the modulation of cast your man and you were never seen again. Then the next one, ba ba ba, we got grew a meal. And then the invitation in gold pen, even as I'm singing this now, I'm going all funny. Uh, and then back <laughs> back into the sort of verse again. I just, it's again, to keep repeating myself, it's such an adventure. It it's makes everything just go man. completely yeah. Yeah. widescreen. Like you just see, you know, the, the landscape goes off into infinity at that point. Uh, I mean, absolute master mm-hmm. on there, and uh, you know, and and then makes that the rest of that song incredible because the whole song is building towards that middle eight for me. I think, and such a lovely way to put in the same sentence crops and exams and both of them failing. It's just a, a perfect yeah, line, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And linking all the themes of the song and maybe the whole of their career, really. That sort of combination of the the earth and the exam and school and the stuff we have to do and go through in real life and then out of nowhere an invitation and gold pen it's such an odd yeah but it's 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 such a kind of simple quotidian thing you know to end this this rather monumentally kind of like emotional middle eight yeah it's a heart tugger that one i think the the middle eight yeah it is one to me it's one of those ones it's a good example of I, i wish in an alternative dimension that it would be extrapolated into 
an a you know a song by its, itself. Yeah, but, uh, but would it work if if you did do that? Hell yeah, it's ACC, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> Um, Sarah, shall we have one of yours? I have to say, and it happens all the time when I have a break from XTC, um, not because I need to, but just because you listen to different music, is that when you go back to it, Laurie said this as well the other day, you really do realise that they are the greatest band of this, um, whatever style, pop, new wave, whatever you want to call it, they are the absolute masters. And that's what I felt this week just listening. I mean, I wouldn't say that I've picked my middle eights because I think they're the greatest middle eights in the world in, in the sense that you were mentioning about the Beatles stuff, but every everything they do, every element they have is just incredible. The consistency of the output, I just... This week I've been thinking, God, it's happened again. I'm amazed again. I'm Every time I go back, I'm like, fuck. There's not, there's no one else that can do that. I think the only other person is Bowie. Maybe for me, Kate Bush, I know she's nowhere near as, um, I don't want to say diverse, but I just think that as artists, there's Bowie and there's XTC and that's, you can't compete. You absolutely can't compete. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't choose these again because I thought they were the greatest middle eights in the world. But I went for um, I Can't Own Her, um, Apple Venus, because it's one of my favourite songs anyway. I think it's incredible. I think it's kind of weirdly Disney-esque, a sort of adult Disney. Um, I think that, along with Books Are Burning, is probably the most vulnerable that I feel Andy has ever shown. And um, I love that because I think most of the time he's always honest he's always in an honest state and he's you know there's elements of sarcasm things are tongue-in-cheek and, and it's obviously like you said Laurie there's everything's in there for a reason but I feel like with I Can't Own Her I feel like I'm listening to his soul and his grief and all the the vulnerability of him which is what I love about this song so it's not necessarily about the musicality of that middle eight um but what I do think is brilliant about it, when we're talking earlier about the balance a middle eight gives a song, I think that lyrically, when he goes into the... It's almost like an explanation. It's always like a, a tease and seize of what he means about the song. So he's saying, look, I can't own her. But then he says, I don't mean literally. I don't mean <laughs> women, know your place. Know your limits. Get back in the kitchen. But in a funny way, that's Andy as well. In the, you know, in the middle, like, he's sort of saying, look, I don't mean this in a cheap way. I don't mean this is flippant. I'm saying it's, it's breaking my heart that I can't control my marriage or this love. And I think, and then there's this, that, that pause, and then it comes back in, and I may as well wish for the moon in hand. And it's like, you can cry. You can absolutely cry at that. And I think the reason why I love, XTC, whether it's their middle eights, that middle eight, or Books of Burning middle eight. And I know that that's an Andy Partridge song, but I think with Colin and Andy together, via a middle eight or via but all their influences together, you've got the perfect balance of two completely different writers. So you have Andy's wonkiness, which is sometimes 
not overly commercial or pretty or listenable. You know, it can be quite ugly and his tone can be quite uncomfortable, you know, lyrically or the way that he sings something. And then you've got the other end of the scale of Colin where he's sickly sweet sometimes and the melodies are a bit, let dare I say it, cheesy, like, I don't know, the song Grass or whatever. But with, but with them both together, you'll get a middle eight thrown in there, perhaps by Andy, or a guitar part thrown in there by Andy, and they balance each other out. So that they have the perfect pop song that's not too cheesy and that's not too left field and weird. Um, and so obviously I've chosen that song. Um, and then we were looking... I was going to use um, Love at First Sight and then Helicopter. I remember I, I passed them on to you last week, but we, we spoke about the fact that their middle eights weren't particularly uh, memorable, if you like. But with Love at First Sight, Laura and I used to watch this um, live... Uh, gig that they did. I think it's in like Amsterdam or somewhere called Puckle Pop or something. Anyway, they did Love at First Sight and it's all sort of bouncy and lovely and happy. And then that really jagged uh, guitar comes in, which is just quite an incessant Andy guitar. It's not even a solo, it's just a part. But that middle eight is perfect because the rest of the song for me is so positive and dreamy Without the middle eight, I'd be a bit like, oh, God, I've had so much candy floss, you know. So together, they are just extreme. And, yeah, that was my choice. I mean, I absolutely love it. So if anyone else wants to comment on I Can't Own Her, go for it. I love how he he says, is that an odd request? Is that something so funny? Yeah. Um, there's there's a real yeah. thing about his songs, his love songs, how they've kind of evolved over the years. Some of them are like directed inwards really, really heavily, and some of them are like giving advice, you know, some of them are like really quite helpful if you were to take them literally. You think of a song like Jump, you know? And it, it's kind of very open, it's a very open, I mean he's when he writes about matters of, of the heart, affairs of the heart. He's very open-hearted about it. And it's it's like the first, you know, the way that I Can't Own Her opens makes me think, not in a in a pejorative fashion, because I, I'm not a fan of musical theatre, but it reminds me, it, I think of Andy Stoud, like, on a stage somewhere, and you're looking down on him, and he has a single spotlight, and he's singing that one first line, possibly to the, the circle, you know, to the balcony or something. It could be from some kind of musical. It'd be a very good one. But, um, yeah, it has that sort of feel about it. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful, it's another heartbreaker, that that middle eight. I mean, again, it's just... And he does, I, I love the way he squishes, like David was saying about he squishes the the way the, the, the lyrics scan. You know, he, he, he finds a way around, you know, squeezing a little bit too much into each line. And, and, you know, I love... Yeah, but that middle eight is quite, it's kind of jovial and you boppy. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'm not really into this, but I'm there. And then, and then when that stop happens, yeah, you're beautiful back in chord that world again, yeah. pain. And I believe every moment of it, every element. I've seen you cheer up to that song. I still in front do. Of me. There's not many songs that do make me do that. There's a couple of Kate Bush songs, mainly because they usually represent a specific time that I heard them. Um, like when I want when I make myself cry, I'm like, oh, I want to have a good cry. I'll put on moments of pleasure, mm. Kate Bush. Write them off. And um, 
it's the same. <laughs> it's the same with I can't own her. And you are like, off when you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm crying. But Sarah puts it very well about the way that he sort of steps out of the song and comments on it. And there's a few examples here where he does that. It's like, right, I'm going to take a little moment where we have a bit of perspective and I'm, I'm going to be over here now and looking back at that journey yes. that I've been taking. Or He doesn't do it on, all the, on, on everything, yes. thing, but there are a few examples where it's an, another voice, another perspective, another angle. Do you think that dispels it, though? Do you think, do you think that slightly dispels the, the world that you're... I, I know what you mean about that song, but do you think there's an element of, yeah, um, I've got to put middle, I've got to do this this thing, or or do you think that without that it could have been as better song, worse song, same song? I don't know the answer to that, but what what I do think is that it, when I listen to the middle eight, because I've listened to that ten times over in context, I feel like. He's taking himself so seriously in terms of what he truly, truly feels. And that's going into that song. And then for a moment, he almost shakes his head and is sort of not awkward with his own uh, vulnerability there. But he realises that it's completely exposed and raw. And that's where the middle eight is like, this is the reality. I'm, oh, God, I'm telling the world this is happening. And then, right, I'm going to go back into it because it is real. <laughs> so I do think it it is valid in the song. Even if you think, oh, God, that's a juxtaposition, that's jagged, it still makes you realise the importance of the whole, the, the rest of the, it's not even a message, is it? The the, the just outpouring of, of heartache. So, yes, Laurie, thank you for your question. I do think it's relevant. I'm satisfied with the answer, thank you. <laughs> Laurie's questions reminded me of the bit in the middle of Matt, the man who murdered love, where he says, it's the middle of the song. <laughs> he just sort of draws attention <laughs> to the fact that he's in the middle of the song. <laughs> That's, That's good as anything. That's fantastic. Breakdown, 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 breakdown. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a small subgenre, but um, it's songs that sort of break the fourth wall and reference themselves. Uh, yeah. I was thinking when I was listening to this, because someone picked... Um, no language in our lungs, where he says, "I would have made this instrumental, but the words got in the way." And it, it struck me the only one, the other one, I, yeah, well, schools out. He said, uh, "Alice Cooper sings." Uh, we can't even think of a word that rhymes, uh, and that. But it's it's a it's an interesting subgenre of tunes, I think. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you know that's confidence though? That's like because some uh, some people could write that, and you could think it was the worst line ever. But I like that. That's fabulous. Should we go to No Language in Our Lungs Sing as, as it's been brought up? It's glorious, this this one. An absolute favourite. Yeah, talk about middle eight. This is a middle... I, I, well, I, I lost count. I mean, if you try and count how many bars... Middle hundreds. It's, 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 the middle section, I don't know how long it is. Is it over a minute, probably? Possibly. Well, I mean, I, my definition would be that I thought I had the whole world in my mouth, but but you backed up quite a ways, David, in your, in your oh. selection. Yeah, because I think... It, it almost, you could argue, it begins with that uh, fantastic uh, guitar, guitar solo, the, the harmony um, fuzz guitars there. Uh, Andy once described this song, I think it's in the notes for the live album from 81 or whatever it is. He talks about it, the, the, the pace of it being like uh, shifting breeze blocks from one side of the stage to the other or something like that. Because it, it does have that rather sort of lumbering ka-tum, ka-tum, ka-tum beat. And if anything, this makes it even more laboured. There's a, a change, again, from major to minor at the end of the guitar solo, and it takes you into a completely different uh, tangent. It almost makes it more otherworldly. There's that kind of woozy synth going... Doo, 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 
which eventually kind of resolves when it makes sense because there's a major section and they And that, that's that's when things begin to open out again. But by that time, you know, 30 seconds or so has elapsed and you're into a, a completely different musical scape. And then after that, it goes into a... a it begins really quite low-key. And it's quite an extended crescendo up to the... Uh, there is no language in our lungs again. It's it just it's a complete detour. This one's definitely you know a three thousand mile detour. This one. <laughs> yeah, I mean for me, uh, top top ten XDC tune, and I think that whole section is just so incredibly psychedelic. Um, yeah. I think that this from uh, gun to my head, um, Black Sea's my favorite XDC album. I think it's just it's just got so, some of my really absolute favorite tunes. But th- this one is just devastatingly good and yeah that whole again the whole journey it just sounds like being on an ocean it was and that oh oh it just sounds like the song is coming to greet you over the hill as it comes and its arms get wider and wider and just until it just encapsulates sort of wraps its arms around you um just yeah an incredible piece of work the whole thing the amazing guitar solo and then the, the, I don't know what is it a poly a poly synth or something because it pops up a bit on that album anyway. But the dude 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 that you were talking yeah. about, it's, mono, it's lovely. I think, I think it was, a, was it a little Korg or something. It might be. That, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, a really incredible piece of music. Interestingly, for a song about uh, being bereft of words, it's a very verbose. Got a lot of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Because it's about a period or a, a feeling that he had some way back where he felt that he really could say something and make a big, big statement, but was stymied. Mark likes to remind me that I was once very briefly in an XTC cover band, um, who are, like, very well-known ecstatic, right? So I was, like, the Stuart Sutcliffe, the bass player, who kind of, like, disappeared after, like, you know, a couple of rehearsals. But I did get to play that song with them. I think I only did about three, three or four rehearsals before I very ungracefully bowed out. But... We played that song and it was absolutely fucking glorious to play in a scabby little rehearsal room in in West London. It's almost like it can't fail, you know, when you're playing it. You know, it was a bunch of people. The very first time I remember we all played it, it was was just monolithically fun and, and yeah, great to, to play. It really sounded brilliant from the off. So I guess it's just structurally, musically, it's kind of unassailable really a bunch of you know that these kind of guys could just get together and and play it in a, a little room for the first time and it sounded really good and that slow crescendo that david's talking about means that by the time you get to the returning to the main song it's just a sense of relief and release because it's just wound you up and wound you up and wound you up and wound you up and no, now you're let, allowed to go it, it 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 has a real musical power to it doesn't it it's very upful as um ian jury would say <laughs> Let's listen to Dave Gregory talking to Hugh Nankovell about Train Running Low on Soul Coal, and after that we'll hear Crawford talking about it. I did the... Um, I did the... Yeah. Again, that was all written in this uh, open E tuning. He just tuned his daughter's guitar to open E. Yeah. He wrote the entire album in that style. So he showed me how to play this... Uh, and then in the middle section, when it goes into half time, yeah. 
and the 12 string Rickenbacker comes in with these big jangly bling, 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 bling. Great, great lyric in the middle eight section there. I thought he did it. That was just one of my favourite things he ever wrote, Andy. And um, and then we, there's, there's a 12 string Rickenbacker and then I played this nutty banjo part which I couldn't play today it's too, way too fast right at the end of this it's just descending into this uh, to the end of the middle eight section there's this little contrapuntal that I played with a flat pick I don't know how I did it because it wasn't very sped or anything I must have had a very um, strong right hand technique right. in those days I couldn't play it today okay. I really couldn't don't you wish Dave Gregory like would come on at the end of the ten o'clock news and just tell us that everything's going to be? Okay <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he also said that his his favourite, not only his favourite middle eight. I think yeah, hang on. I think the middle eight is the best thing Andy's ever written, and the guitar's great. Lots of backwards echo and three twelve strings. I don't know when that quote is from, so it could have been, you know, concurrent with the times. So it might have been superseded by something, but it's one of those. Middle eights that is a real he does really pivot away really quite far from the main crux of the song um in quite a noticeable fashion it's it's an odd thing because train running low is it's very blocky and and has a lot of percussion it's quite industrial sounding in a lot of ways and then it's sort of like suddenly pings off into this um it's almost like Cotter Twins or something, you know, these 12-string guitars that are all tuned to, I think, yeah, like you said in the in a little clip there, you know, his daughter's guitar that he tuned to, to a chord. It's sort of in two halves. You have, and all my servants are leaving, imagination gone packing, and the second half, Hammer Goes Down, Breaks All Scream, he's he's devoted half of the middle eight to setting up this this beautiful alternative event, you know, this lovely musical event but i think he kind of like somewhere you know he may be reckoning well i've got to get it it's got to come back to earth at some point i've got to steer it back so it spends you know the the, the remainder of the middle eight working its way sort of downhill you know towards the you know back and, and does kind of crash back into the song in quite a quite a fashion i'm thinking as well what sarah was saying about I can't own that, and that sense of hearing the true singer behind the the sentiment of the lyrics. I think I get a strong sense in this song, you know, particularly the line "He's just a nut and he's cracking." There's real, that's really Andy Partridge that we're hearing there. He's exposing himself, and it's you know he's got this clever metaphor about trains and and carriages and stuff, but actually it, it's it's a very serious thing that he's talking about, and that really he uses the middle eight to to get that across because because it's getting more and more intense at the same time. As he does that. Yeah, you don't feel like he's trying to squeeze as much mileage out of the this one single idea. You know, it, it's, it's he's much better than that as a songwriter. You know, it's much more expansive, much more cinematic and widescreen the way he approaches things and very clever, you know. A couple of things occurred to me, Crawford, when you were saying about the structure of it. There's this kind of descending, almost out of control hayride, which mm. is so onomatopoeic for the song. And you've even got the banjo there going plinkety plink. How does he get himself out of that sort of having seemingly gone downhill 
musically how does he get himself out of it he uses a couple or one uh, diminished chords which are very a very useful device in getting yourself Mm. back to wherever you need to be because they're they're not sort of related so much to uh, the regular major or minor chords they can take you in different uh, directions and it's almost I think it's a Steely Dan trick as well quite often to uh, get yourself back into the main groove by introducing a, a seemingly random d- diminished chord which can uh, it's almost like a, uh, a Swiss army knife to get yeah get Beach, Beach Boys too I think again. as well <laughs> yeah and he uh, he uses it but yeah very skillfully there but that met, particularly the line for me, the melody, me and a couple of empty carriages, mm. is just killer. You know, it's you know really, really like kind of sticks out. It's absolutely wonderful. I think of Steely Dan as being the American XTC, really. But, yeah. <laughs> um, shall I do a song, please? I'm think I'm thinking there's a comparison with what we were just saying with Snowman, which is funny because it's sort of in emotional terms, it's 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 a, it's a jollier, more melodic kind. Uh, kind of song although the sentiment is 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 serious but it does something similar i think the middle eight of 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 that which is that it ratchets up the tension uh so that you just need like a few of these middle eights we were talking about you just need the relief and the release when you get to the end of it and it's also making me think that uh many of these middle eights this is going to counteract what uh, Laurie was saying many of these middle eights have the most memorable lines in it that we that that fans will talk to each other and in this case uh, people will always be tempted to wipe their feet on anything with welcome written on it it's it's a line that people remember so, so you know that, that lodges into your head and such a brilliant lyric yeah uh, you know it's clever and funny and 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 surprising and and Brutal as well. I was wondering if that (laughs) is this the beginnings of like Andy's kind of like quite kind of you know sort of bold way of talking about relationships. You know that line because it does really pop out at you, which will take you straight to your dictionary or something like that. It's yeah, it's 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 Mm. pretty brutal, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Um, And I'm thinking as well that in you know another songwriter might have decided that the middle eight was was just the line she treats me far too frosty, which does appear earlier in the song. Uh, which probably is literal. Uh, you can tell me, is it as many as eight bars? It's it, you know it, it comes in earlier, but then what he does is he then takes it up a, a notch and says, you know, seems you would say I was too soft-hearted. It, it and it and it the tension gets faster and, and 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 it builds and builds and and like the songs that we were just talking about, then you are kind of grateful in a way to to return to familiar territory, familiar landscape when you get to the, to the end of it. Can I talk about Sergeant Rock? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I've got uh, well, it's an interesting one for me because this this was my absolute sort of way in. I saw them do it on top of the pops in 1980, and I I just got into pop music, and it you know did change my life, and I I thought it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But and I was really into sense of working over time. But then I got into sort of other stuff, and and like I said, I didn't really come back to XDC until. It was a couple of things that got me back. It was the laughing prisoner thing with them doing the man who sailed around his soul and then, uh, you know, and then seeing them on the the late show. Well, listening back to Sergeant Rock, it just struck me as just what an incredibly sort of weird tune. Just again, so much from my world, all this, I was really into Captain Beefheart and there's all this kind of really clashing kind of dissonant chords. It's like, how the fuck did they get this in the charts? You know, it's amazing. And Again, the middle eight is just so unusual. You've already had this really unusual song and this really, really unusual middle eight. But it was 
funny reading about it because I know that Andy said he really feels sort of embarrassed about the lyrics and that they seem really sort of sexist and that. But that that was never my reading. My reading of Sergeant Rock, because I didn't know about the comic character Sergeant Rock, I thought the lyrics were an ironic statement about rock music and going back to that kind of 70s big balls misogynistic rock music. I thought that the lyrics were saying that he's this like nerdy guy, but if he joined a rock band, then all the girls are going to fancy him and stuff. So I, I, I never saw it as being sexist. I thought if he was making a comment about the sexism in rock. Yeah. So it, it's a real shame that he kind of like disowned that tr- track because it's, oh, come on, man. And it's, it's so unique and so sort of original. And again, just absolutely getting away with murder, getting that into the charts. When you listen to the clashes and the dissonances in the, in the guitars, it's amazing. I think a, a lot of things can be, if you've got a really nice sing-along chorus, you can kind of forgive any herky-jerky stuff going on in, in, in the verses and elsewhere, you know, as long as you've got a nice bright chorus. But sometimes also he will, and, and I think this is the case in Sergeant Rock, that he he can use the middle eight to become even more melodic and it's a very tuneful yeah. uh, alternative to the some of the brashness that, that, that's followed. I also love in the Sergeant Rock the way he uses, he sings the word, I think it's the word lan, uh, yeah, no man's land, but it no goes on for ages. Yeah. It's like this, ant- it becomes a sort of ag, no man's land, and that's a very Andy yeah, Partridge yeah. thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> and then yeah. that insane guitar solo as well afterwards. It's just a great. I mean, it's it, it's it's up there with you know this town ain't big enough for both of us as a real like hijack of the charts with like something kind of really really like dense and brilliant. The song has a kind of running joke throughout it, doesn't it? Really, it's, or rather, it is. It is almost a running joke, isn't it? I think. Well, that's how I heard it. I didn't hear. I didn't have. I didn't hear rock music when I when I heard it. But I, I think I've always thought of it as a, as as David says, a sort of like it's that image of the sort of wimp on the <laughs> Charles Atlas adverts where you would have somebody who have, having sand cooked into their face. Yeah, exactly. Having sand caked in his face. Yeah, and it's that it, the wimpy character is as much as a, 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 a comic figure as the sort of you know sexist stereotype. But um, yeah, I yeah, he's he's falling prey to you know the foibles of advertising and believing that if he does this one simple thing, then he's gonna you know it's gonna turn his life around and he's gonna impress you know, the opposite sex. You said that you were going to talk about season cycle as the best middle eight ever. Yeah. I was very, I was very flippant about that. Um, in comparison to the Beatles, I I think the Beatles had, the Beatles came from that, you know, a different place in ACC when they were writing music, obviously. And, and they were coming from, you know, classic songwriting in that Tim Pan Alley mode where it was craft, 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 two guys sweating in a room, the piano and sheet music and stuff. And so they, to to be taken seriously as songwriters, which they very much you know weren't expecting to be by the, the the media and the press, they they had to work hard on their craft, you know. And I feel like Andy, you know, and Colin, when they don't have to necessarily do that because it's the seventies and eighties, so they they don't have there isn't the pressure to prove themselves as um, very uh, solid kind of songwriters, but. I think their kind of fascination with the mechanics of songwriting comes out in the way that they write their middle eights. And I mean, a lot of the Beatles' middle eights are in there because they had to put a middle eight in there. And they're not particularly amazing. Some of them are brilliant. Some of them are amazing. You know, you think of um, We Can Work It Out. You know, life is very short and there's no time. You know, incredible, you know, sort of example of a middle eight. Um, Season Cycle. 
Uh, in fact, when I when I made the clip to play, I didn't even include the second. You could argue that it goes on, you know, right through that kind of bit where everything drops out. You know, the closing winter down and then all the ding 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 on the bass and stuff. But it's really just for me the first section. In terms of like chamber pop music, I don't know if there's a better eight bars. <laughs> I just don't. It's absolutely tragically heartbreakingly perfect. Everything about it, even if you know the way I don't know, it's just it's just so the sentiment, the chords. The way he pulls a trapdoor when he sings um, Bless My Soul, when he just drops the word soul in such a, I don't know, it's, 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 it's incredibly expressive and amazing. The way he articulates the words, everybody says, join our religion, get to heaven. Well, I say, no thanks. Why bless my soul? You know, it's I'm already there. And then that chord and the spread, and you can almost hear when he sings the word there, there's a sort of a nervousness that he's anticipating that that chord. And I, I think he's ever so slightly flat as well when he sings it, or there's a waver when he kind of sings it. I, I didn't, it's one of those things that crept up on me as well, is that that little middle section of Season Cycle and Ballet for a Rainy Day and Thousand Umbrellas, it was never my favourite bit of of skylarking until much like many years into appreciating that album. I was always desperate to get to earn enough for us, but looking back on it now, it's, uh, I kind of, I don't know if anyone feels the same, but I feel that those three songs are kind of a sort of a mini suite, obviously the of a piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't have anything really insightful to say about season cycle other than it just, it crushes my soul with its sheer fucking perfection. <laughs> Again, I think it's that it's onomatopoeic in that it almost completely shuts down, which is what the lyric says: "Are they closing winter yeah. down?" And just for a, a brief second, nothing happens really, and and then it starts up again. The season cycle. Da, 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 da. And that get, perfect acceleration on the snare drum. Da, 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 you know where it does yeah. comes back. It's it's poised so beautifully. I mean, that's real incredible considering that they didn't put the drums on until almost the end mm-hmm. i mean god knows what they were they must have had to do quite a lot of leaps of imagination to i mean i don't think they had drum machine on it or something possibly to replace it or just like a simple click but it, it must have taken a lot of faith to th- you know to sort of go all, all the way through that process of writing it and not really hearing any live drums on it that you know it was going to turn out so so well you know Sarah, we've touched on Books of Our Burning, but we could say more about it. It strikes me the thing about Books of Burning is that that it's quite a sort of chuggy sort of song that establishes a its rhythm, and then the the, the middle eight comes in and breaks that rhythm and and provides a sort of musical relief, a, a sort of contrast that uh, that so many of these middle eights do elsewhere that we've been talking about. What's interesting is it it to me isn't really a generic XTC song. It's more of a generic song in its uh, approach. Um, it, when I first heard it, it reminded me of that Jeff Buckley song, uh, Everybody Here Wants You, that um, mm. I did have heard that from My Sweetheart, the drunk. It's got the same drum beat, same amount of space in the song. But, it, yeah, I know what you mean. It's a kind of a generic song. But what I love about it is even though it is, the tempate is generic, 
everything in it is absolutely genius. So it's elevated above that basic song. And you know, when they burn books, people are next. Yeah, that's the killer line, yeah. That one line alone, that is like... I know he's not a protest singer. He's not bloody Bob Dylan or Billy Bragg. He's never... He's never actually trying to get you to take a side on anything. But when he talks about something, I feel like he either takes something really mundane and makes it brilliant, like Respectable Street, or he takes something intense, like Books Are Burning, and he can, and he can put that sarcasm in it, but then he can, he can flip it on its head and make you realise, no, this is serious. You need to talk about what I'm singing about. And we are doing it today, you know, whether it's this song or all the others, and... I think that's what he's incredible with because he can make you laugh and he can make you um, think about all the things that we all do every day that are ridiculous. But when he means it, he really fucking means it. And you know what? I feel like Andy is strung up a lot. He's hung out to dry with a lot of his lyrics in, in the sense that, you know, Bob Dylan wouldn't be or The Clash wouldn't be. You just kind of accept that they are chanting about something of importance. But I feel like... Not just with lyrics, like the, him as a person, and as a person, he's, he's often in the firing line, isn't he? Because he is outspoken, and he is a character, and he's not often apologetic. I mean, all of these things I love. But that song as a lyric is really, really strong. And then what's, what's funny, like you said at the end, that guitar solo is so not Andy. It's like, if anything... I mean, he said he don't want an Ernieing guitar player. Remember in the documentary, no Ernieing. And I was like, well, that guitar solo, that's Ernieing. That's like Eric Clapton at his best. But even even with him doing it, it's I can again, I completely believe that, and I am invested, completely invested in that song. I don't think he'd have written that at the beginning of their career. I think it he probably wouldn't have taken it as seriously. But I I love books of burning. Laurie, what do you think? Well, I think, well, to be honest, the Great Fire is not my favourite song at all. It's like No Thugs is probably my favourite song, and that's actually got a really good middle eight. So I don't actually know why I didn't I didn't choose that because actually it's probably quite more, um, it's much more you know pertinent to the message of the song. But you know, No Thugs is just like it's so sex and it's so kind of brutal and chest pushing, but. Great Fire, I, I do really love it, but I, you know, it. I think in terms of the middle eight, that is probably it. Kind of sits better, but no thugs. You know, when it gets to that kind of weird little, um, you know, sing song, and I don't think there's a middle eight with which is done so sweetly, which has had the most sort of violent little, you know, anecdote in the middle. It's it, it, when you listen to it for the first time. It, I don't think anyone really kind of gets it. And it's you have to listen to it again and again. You go, that's fucking brutal. Like, that is, this is England, right? That in, in, in a sentence, just absolutely microcosm down into a little kind of um, seesaw thing. There's another little Mellotron thing there as well. That's I think the Mellotron is probably quite, um, it's hired out for middle eights quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like a flute a flute sound or a calliope or something like that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's something like, it's like parachuted in whenever they're like, oh fuck, what do we do? Mm. We've had too much kind of manly guitar that's got some sort of sweet flutey stuff Get out. Get the tron out. Oh, I think that's total bravery though. That's what, if we go going, if you think of Battle Books of Burning, I think they're such a brave band, whether it's something lyrically or like you say Laurie that I think they take some dangerous subjects 
and they go for it. They take the risk. They're never apologetic about it. And I, I really appreciate that. I love Larry's observation about the way that in No Thugs that there is it's such a pretty little middle eight. And, and you're exactly right. When you think about what he's thinking about, it's a, a boy with pam- Nazi pamphlets in his bottom drawer and it's beating up <laughs> Asians and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will throw in another song, another middle eight, and I nearly didn't suggest Pale and Precious because I thought it, it didn't even occur to me it was a middle eight because it feels like even more so than the example Crawford gave earlier, a, a song in itself, which is the um, Up She Rises bit. And it's, a, song, it's a bit that mm. always... I, it still makes me laugh however many times I've heard it because it still takes us into that Pet Sounds world so completely and so unexpectedly and it goes off on this, it really does feel like a, a, a new song but then eventually it does come back to to, to the original um, and it's it, and it, I, I guess compared to many of the examples we've been given which have been very intense and dark and this is my soul being exposed here this is goes in completely the opposite way it's 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 and it is most playful and most fun and of course it's 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 the dukes of stratosphere so that that sort of was legitimized i suppose but but uh it it, it i almost feel apologetic for introducing it into the into the mix because i don't know if it it counts as middle eight. <laughs> What's so good about the Duke stuff? I know I'm not talking about middle eights here. What's so good about the Duke stuff? You would never have had a psychedelic album that good because back in the day, there always had to be like this fucking sidelong jam or something that they did at the time yeah. that they, they'd include on. Like, you know, like Love did that with like Revolution or whatever. And it's just a revelation, whatever it's called. It's like, really? You know, but there's none of that in the Dukes. It's all brilliant, you know. So Yeah, there's none of the brevity that is in yeah, the, yeah. the Dukes. Gregory records. certainly said to Andy, you know, are you sure you want to give this pale and precious to the Dukes because it really should have been on a, yeah, it was good yeah. enough to have been on an XDC uh, album. Who was going to talk about Me and the Wind? Was that you, Crawford? Yeah. The one thing I really love about Me and the Wind is um, it's like the apex of Colin's lovely parpy bass. Now that I'm out in the shouting in doorways, free from my love, more like murder. Murder. There's a little kind of bit on the bass, which is classic moulding Parpy, fretless, and it um, there's actually something. See, see the when he sings murder, right? Does anybody hear? Suddenly, <laughs> anyone hear the word fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no, does anybody? Does any, does anybody hear like um, er, like a descending harmony feeding in behind that, or is that just like some kind of weird? There's, there's something. There's a really lovely, rich harmony going on there. Um, I always no, hear like another know. three notes and descending, like going underneath it. But I think there's only one, and I think my brain's in the, yeah. stuffing in the other two. But yeah, it's it reminded me of how great um, that middle period Colin Moulding bass thing, and how just how incredibly um, overtly contrapuntal he got in his bass playing over the years, especially when they. St- stopped touring and he probably like McCartney you know he had that opportunity to just sit for two days and work on one bass line and sit behind the producer and just let his imagination kind of run free coupled with this lovely occasionally fretless unworkable bass line like he could almost have just like said he'd go and learn a tuba and go into or a sousaphone or something and do that instead and it would be the same kind of counterpoint it was like and I love that about his as a bass player, I love that about his playing. But yeah, it's one of my favourite tunes off of uh, Mummer especially, which is, of course, their greatest album. And um, it's like, 
Yeah, it's just it's just a favorite. I love it. I love the vocal melody. I love everything about it. But it's another example where, just from a purely musical point of view, that song is so staccato-ish and jumping. This rhythm is going around and round and round. Uh, the chorus is released a little bit, but you really need the middle eight to to to. It's that landscape thing. Just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything loosens up. It moves away from that kind of Michael Nyman kind of minimalist sort of feel into that unopen much more open, kind of looser, sort of, uh, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say um, groove. Kavas, have you got another song that you haven't mentioned yet that you would like to? I did mention Jason and the Argonauts, but, I mean, mm. it's, it's much... Yeah, I, I love the whole tune. But I love... I mean, I, I love this one particularly. You get the the middle eight, which sort of bookends another incredibly psychedelic section. It may, may, maybe my favourite use of phasing in any tune, um, especially the way it comes to... It's, you know, they bring the phasing right back to its peak, you know, uh, for the, I have watched the man. But for, um, again, there's just the key change out of the tune uh, uh, in, into the I have watched is absolute magic. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's sort of him stepping around or, or making the connection with the the listener because he's done all of these other journeys and it's just saying, yeah, no, this is what I've seen, yeah. And that amazing high harmony that comes in on the second I have watched as well. It's just like, oh, my God. So good. Yeah, so great. Should we finish with um census working overtime? That seems to be a good place to finish. I could finish I could finish with Dear Madam Madam Barnum, but the only reason I was suggesting it is because or well, the main reason I was suggesting it, Dear Madam Barnum was because it, it has the luxury of two middle eights. It has a double eight. Yeah. Oh, which, which makes up for which makes up for I won't say a paucity, but there are there are less middle eights on none none such, I noticed. Oh, yeah, is that I right? So. That's interesting, yeah. They're all gone on the one song. This is terrible, but the the one thing about senses working overtime that I, I never realised that I didn't actually know is I don't I didn't know until today when I looked at the lyrics what the little spoken bits are after, but to me they're very, very beautiful. England's glory and striking and then, beauty. Yeah. I just I I've never tuned into it enough to know what it what it actually is, which is shameful really. But now I know. Yeah, there were the the lines on the matchbox, that's what it said on the match box ah, of matches. Okay. So, David, what else can you tell us about the middle eight in senses working overtime? Oh, well, it's another very long one. Either 17 or 34, depending on how many, where you put the, <laughs> where the, how you count your crotchets. But yeah, another very long one. A middle, a middle 17. If, if ever there was a, a middle eight that really sort of blew air into the song to really lift it up and, you know, it's a, it's a pneumatic middle eight. It really, really lifts it into, into the uh, stratosphere. The tambourine's going... And the, the, it just really gets the heart racing, even if it, you know, it's, it's an upbeat song anyway, of course, but uh, this one really doubles the uh, adrenaline. One thing I love about it is that you're aware of a kind of guitar interplay, but you're not, your ears can't really quite sort it out because it's in this kind of quite fine mesh that a lot of English settlement is like, you know, the interplay between 12-string mm. acoustic, electric. Um, it's all dashing this way and that, and... Um, but you're just aware of some lovely, beautiful dissonances there. But it's it's basically A G A G D D D D D and all sorts of jangly little bits going on. And I just find that so uplifting. And again, you could argue that's the the job of a uh, of a good middle eight is to re- uh, really take you somewhere. And it has this unusual acoustic lead accompanied by voice. And that's extended a bit further than you think because it revisits a couple of the bars of that and the bass. Doom doo 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 doo. 
if it's, if someone asked you, what, okay, what's your best, your favourite minute of XDC? <laughs> I, I might say, well, the, the, yeah, the middle eight of senses working over time. You, yeah, it's, it's just such a piece of wonder and cleverly brings you back not to the chorus, but to the bridge. The bridge, yeah. Um, and all the world is basically shaped or football-shaped, whatever it is. Cut short on the single version as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. But no, I, I totally agree. It's like it's like the treasure at the heart of it because you've got this incredible verse, absolutely brilliant chorus, and that would have been enough. And then it's like, what else could they do? Oh, right, well, they're going to do this as well. It's like, oh, come on, you know. It launches it into space. Yeah. And, totally. and exploring that idea lyrically about the, the, the bad as well as the good and saying that it's all kind of valuable and worthwhile and it's not just a sort of an upbeat song about celebrating the good stuff it's also about celebrating the the, the life's richness in all its unpleasantness mm-hmm. as well as its pleasantness yeah um but to me they're very very beautiful mm-hmm. yeah i love how colin persists with that baseline right to the very end of it as well yeah. it's just like he's just going for it you know it's so cool I think we've exhausted middle eights. Thank you very, very much for all of that. Thank you, Crawford, for having the idea. Thank you for all of you for listening to the songs. I think we have to finish with one last question to Laurie. <laughs> you started off hating middle eights. Have we persuaded you in any small way that XTC's middle eights are worthwhile? Do you know what? I think you have. <laughs> well, then our work here is done. Job done, yeah. I shall sleep safely tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. What? Do you call that noise? Thank you very, very much, Crawford, Cavus, Sarah, Laurie, and David, and to songwriter Gaz O'Donnell. Many, many thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible, including the following Nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Cale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusuf Mora, Amy Parkinson, Marie Meikle, Karen Neal, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. And if you'd like to support the XTC podcast, of course you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thank you very, very much for listening, and I'll be back next month with more XTC. See you then. Like